Just got back from Mexico. I send, I feel like I've been to another country and back since I last stood here with you, because I have. And uh, I got to visit my daughter, for those of you who didn't know, who's posted as a missionary down there. It was spectacular getting to see that. I was doing that because I do want to go up these stairs without tripping, Brian, and faster for you, Doyle, I guess. So I'm going to be having my hip replacement surgery a week from this Thursday. Uh, so keep me in your prayers, if you don't mind. I've, I'm paying the doctor a little extra to make me bionic. And um, I'm hopeful, hopefully I can... Uh, can move even better and faster once that's done. So uh, remember a couple things coming up. John already explained to you that we got our line of departure event coming. I just want to encourage you. Go ahead and sign up. You can do it right now. I got an alert. Somebody signed up right when John announced it. You can sign up, but that will help us as we're searching for what venue we're going to need based on the numbers that we have, whether we can do it here, we need to do it off campus, our child care, snacks, things like that. We'd love for you to sign up and uh, be a part of that. So we are smack dab in the middle of this study that we're kicking this year off with, a study of one episode from the life of Paul from chapter 17 of the book of Acts. And we're looking at a fairly detailed account of, well, a story of successful evangelism, if you will. And, and that's what's drawn me to it. Our leadership this year has called us to a particular focus. And that's where our theme comes from for this whole year, 2024, for sharing Jesus. Because, we all know this, but because of just spiritual and normal human gravity, we kind of get off mission. But we forget that a very huge, healthy part of a healthy Christian life, it's not just character and integrity and worship and getting to know God, there's a mission part of it. And that is the sharing of the good news of God, the good news of Jesus, sharing Jesus with people who have not heard about him yet or have yet to believe in and follow him yet. So there's been all kinds of efforts made, evangelistic efforts, if you will, over the course of church history, over the last 2,000 plus years, people sharing the good news with the world. Some of those efforts, if not most, I would dare say most of those efforts have been good and loving and effective. You can measure it simply by how many people know Jesus and how many follow Jesus, that most of the efforts over these 2,000 years have been good and kind and loving and effective. Others, I'm going to put in the category of well-intentioned, but the method is such that it's not the message, the method to deliver the message, even if the message is accurate, is such that it's so irrelevant to the culture that it overwhelms the message. It, it makes it like unattractive. The method overwhelms the message. And so at best, those, even though they're well-intentioned, they're... They're ineffective at, at best. At worst, they, are, they completely um, take out the message. They don't, that, that the message isn't even focused on is what I'm trying to say in my fumbling, bumbling way here. So that there might have been a time in my lifetime, I think there was a time where knocking on doors, just cold calling on doors and, and loving someone and, and sharing the good news 
actually worked. It actually was effective. That time, it seems to me, is long past. This still happens sometimes at my door, but it's long past. We're almost wary of someone who's walking, knocking on our door. I, I hate that it's that way, that our culture's that way, but that's how our culture is. I don't know if the bullhorn on the street corner was ever an effective way of doing it, but if it ever was, it's not now. Even if everything coming through that bullhorn is right on, it is the good news message. And I'm pretty sure it's never been a great method to sit on the corner. All these are things I've seen done right here in Amarillo. Sit on the corner with a big poster board listing everyone who's going to hell. I don't know that that is an effective Well, I know that that is not an effective way. So I'm going to be gracious and say all of those might be well-intentioned, but the method matters. And I'm going to add one more category here, that occasionally Jesus' mission to save souls, there's lots of ways of saying it in Scripture, that's one of the ways that souls are saved. Jesus' mission to save souls gets hijacked, completely hijacked by power brokers that are trying to do something else that has little but usually nothing to do with the kingdom at all. It can be an individual who hijacks the message of Jesus to make money for themselves. It can be a social movement that has some singular agenda that might or might not be related to the kingdom. Even if it's related to the kingdom, they're hijacking the name of Jesus and they're using it just to promote that. Then politics can come into play here. Our governments can use the name of Jesus or God. And our political parties do this to gain power. Governments might use it to keep power, increase power. Anyway, you get what I'm saying, that sometimes the, the good news message is co-opted and serves to try to strengthen something that is not what Jesus gave us the good news message for. So because we don't want to use a method that sabotages the message and because we don't want to be duped into thinking that we're sharing Jesus in the way Jesus wants to be shared when we are activistic about even some good thing or our vote, our vote is not how we evangelize the world. Okay, those are not the ways we do it. I felt like this story would be a good place to start the year. It's an evangelistic effort that ended successfully. Now, what do I mean by that? Someone decided to follow Jesus. That's, that's a successful story of evangelism. And a woman named Damaris and a man named Dionysius and a few others, because of what Paul did in this chapter, they are our brother and sister in Christ. And so, That's why I've got an interest in this one scene, and we're spending the month of January in it. Plus, it's in the Bible. And when a story is in the Bible, oftentimes, even though though there are many cultural things going on that don't have relevance to us, because this is 2,000 years ago in Greece, okay? But there's, our faith says that the Holy Spirit preserved that time-bound story with some timeless elements in it that are useful for all time. And so I've been excavating those things and putting those before you and hoping that they help us and help you as we move into this year, turning up the volume on our, the part of our Christian walk that we are called, the mission part, to share Jesus. So while most of your Bibles, I've told you this, inserts the heading over this big text 
Paul in Athens, I've promoted it to you as the day that Dionysius and Damaris believed in and followed Jesus. Because that's what this story is. That's why I care about this episode. Not because Paul is in Athens. That's interesting. But because if Paul had not been in Athens, if he had not done what he did to join God in what was already going on in the lives of Dionysius and Damaris, they may not be our brother and sister in Christ. So last week, we looked at what I saw Paul doing at the beginning of this scene. Next week, we'll finish by what he does at the end. But this week, I want to dive into the bulk here in the middle and make sense of what he's doing there. It's a little wonky, so you're going to have to work today. Okay, work with me as we go through this part of the text. I'm gonna, I didn't do this last week, but I want to read the whole thing uh, to you uh, so to set the scene. Chapter 17 of Acts, starting verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, and as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was doing what? He was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, okay, tune in right here. This is the part we're going to study. Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So what Paul 
did that I want to point out to you this week. You remember last week I talked about he was able to be spiritually bilingual. He assessed the spiritual environment in Athens and the spiritual environment of his people. And then he, he, he can speak church and he can speak marketplace. He's, he's good at both those. And I challenge you, you might need to up your game in one or the other in order to be a part of this. But what he does next, what he does next is amazing. And, I, and this is an old phrase that I pulled way out of my toolkit from long ago. What he did here is he built a bridge. He built a bridge between them and the gospel. He built a bridge between them and Jesus. He met them right where they are at. Not just physically. He did that physically too in Athens. But, but he met them right where they were at spiritually and as human beings. And he had the energy and the love to, and the care to go all the way to where they're at. But then, today we start talking about, he had the skill to build a bridge back to Jesus from there. That's what we're looking at today. Us developing this skill. This is partly what line of departure is about. You developing this skill. You can do it. You can do it. So how did he do it? So the first thing that I see he did, it's in verse 22. Here's the first thing he did, does to construct this bridge from them to Jesus. He affirms what's right and good about them already. That's where he starts. He looks at them. He looks for what's right what's good, maybe ever, even where he has something in common to where it's an us rather than a they and us, right? He says, men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. I mean, I just can't believe this is in Scripture. This is such a sweet introduction. When he finally gets the blessing, he's promoted to his audience of these leaders in the Areopagus setting, cultural leaders of conversation about about spiritual things. He has the chance. He finally has the chance to share what he knows and what he believes after what he's seen. You remember, he saw all the idols and he was greatly distressed. I mean, how easy would it have been to just point out right then everything that's wrong? That's what we're used to doing, right? We're used to looking at, that's, that's not right, this is wrong, and, and we get used to that. We're very trained in this. This is a political season. We're very trained at doing this in politics. We look at whoever we're opposed to and all we can see is what's wrong. Well, you may do that spiritually too. Paul didn't, but how easy would it have been for him to point out the sinfulness going on? It was so in his face. It was literal, literal idolatry all about this. He could have, he did, notice he didn't start with a scripture either. He, he could have started with a relevant scripture. I was trained to do that. You want to get people into the Bible. And he could have, he sure had a good one, like the first of the Ten Commandments, right? He could have started there. Tell us about this. Well, Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. If he wanted another entry point, he could have used the second commandment. Verse 4 of chapter 20 of Exodus, you shall not make for yourself an idol. And why not? Why not? It just seems sound, doesn't it, to you and me as Christians? Why? I mean, it would have been accurate would have been true. He's using the Bible. It's relevant. Why doesn't he just do that? Because he's trying to build a bridge, a bridge to truth, a bridge to Jesus. I've learned in my efforts at loving the world, I'm not great at it, but I aspire to love the world like God loves the world. That's everyone in the world, to so love the world 
right? In my efforts to love the world in Christ's name, I have found there is almost, maybe, not almost, maybe no need ever to be condemning of anyone. Ever. I'm not saying shortchange truth. I'm not saying any of that. You can not shortchange truth and not be condemning. Paul does. Right here. He's not shortchanging a thing. But I don't think even with you, who we agree on what's condemnable, I've not found the need when we talk about those things to be condemning of you. I can leave that to a higher authority and talk about what matters and what truth is and let the Spirit be the one that I like to say convicts not condemns. So I don't ever have, I, I've given up that as a method of ministry, condemning people. I've just given it up. I can't remember the last time I did. But particularly with new people who don't know Christ, with people that have yet to hear about Jesus, to hear the truth, there is never a need. It is never right to be condemning. That is not the way to go about it. And Jesus doesn't. And it shouldn't be hard for us as Christians. If we believe in this good news, this gospel that we're delivering, if we believe in this Jesus that we've received, then we believe, we know it is not because we're smart enough, because we're good enough, because we know enough, because we don't sin enough to be included in the kingdom. Amen? We've got something in common. I've got way more in common with those who don't follow Christ than with Christ. I've got plenty of common ground with them. So it just makes sense that we start, and I just love that the Spirit inspired this text in a way that it's in here. We start by seeing and noting what's right. We start by seeing and noting what's good, maybe even by noting what's the same about us. You know, it's not hard to... Just, let's just acknowledge this. It's not hard to point out what's wrong in somebody, right? It's not, it's not hard to do that. Can we flip the script and start believing it's also not hard to find out what's right in somebody? We're just unpracticed at it. Can we just flip that script and believe if we look and we love enough, we're going to find commonality. We're going to find good things where God is already there in somebody. And we can point to that first, Affirm what's right and good. God wasn't waiting for you to show up to start working on people. To start loving people. You need to see where he's already at work and join that. And I love this here. Paul, remember, was greatly distressed. He was provoked when he saw what was wrong. But I don't think he's horrified and judgmental. And this beginning of this scene proves it. I think he was distressed because he cares for and maybe sees himself in these people sheep without a shepherd so step one in building a bridge he begins by affirming what's right and good about them that's already there second thing you do that's verse 22 verse 23 is the second thing he does he looks to merge with the questions they are already asking right he's he looks to merge with questions that he senses and discovers and hears that they are already asking. It's when he says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. Can you believe this is so brilliant? Like this is so cool that, I mean, they're probably on the edge of their seats going, 
Yeah, and the guy that put out the, the altar to the unknown God, you know, we've got lots of God. They, they've inherited this idea. The Greeks, when they would conquer peoples, they wouldn't destroy the gods. They would adopt them and bring them in. And so the Romans are in charge now, but the Greeks, the ethic of the Greeks is still there. And they're learning about these new gods. Whenever a new god comes in, they're probably like, I didn't know about this god. Someone was wise enough in that council of the Areopagus to go, you know, this could happen again tomorrow. There's probably some god out there we don't know. Because they didn't know this one. This is a god of fertility. This is a god of agriculture. I didn't, I didn't even know. And so maybe they're hedging their bets. We should put one up for that unknown god. We don't want to offend him or her. Right? And so they put that one up. And so instead of being offended, Paul, no, Paul notices this. He looks at this. Instead of condemning this, he notices that they're very religious. That they haven't heard about a god yet. That they're asking a question. Who is the God we don't know? He listened. And he heard that. So Paul doesn't talk first when he stands up. He's already listened. He knows that all people are real people with real questions. He's just looking to see what theirs is right now. And if he believes, and we believe, that this Jesus that he knows is who he says he is, the way, the truth, and life. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life. Then he knows that eventually every real question of every human being is going to ultimately be answered by him. So I don't need to tell them what question they should be asking. Hey, you know where you're going to go when you're going to die? Hey, you're going to heaven or hell? I don't tell them the question I want them to be asking that I think I have an answer to for them that should be convincing. Nope. I'm going to listen, and I'm going to go to them, and I'm going to take care of that. I mean, he could have skipped verse 22 and 23 and just jumped right at verse 24, proclaiming what he believes about God, introducing God as he knows him, but he doesn't. He takes the time, and he takes the energy to let them talk first, to get to know them and their journey, where it's led them, affirm where they've already discovered truth and God, and then ask what questions are they currently asking? So here's what he does next. After he does those two things, this is the skill parts, little, you gotta walk with me through this. He knows how to communicate God to them in a relevant and winsome way to them. He, he knows how to communicate who God is, who Jesus is to them that's relevant to them and attractive to them. He's not redacting. He's not changing what's true about Jesus to meet some whim in that culture. No, he's just listening to the culture and his faith says there's a desire, a universal desire of human beings underneath in that culture that I know Jesus meets and I, I'm connecting those. Now, walk with me here and hopefully this makes sense to you. Okay, so I'll put the text. I won't reread it, but Here's where he starts. First thing we know that we know in this little scene is he knows God. Paul's not going in there not knowing who it is that he has to share. He knows God through Jesus. Okay, he knows the Christian God. Seriously, he's going to cover like in this little speech in these few verses from creation to the resurrection. Okay, he's covering all of that in this little speech without quoting one Bible verse. How? Because he knows God. He's fallen in love 
with God through Jesus. It's someone that he studied and that he's experienced and he knows him. If I'm sharing about Carrie, who she is, what she does, I, I'm, not, I'm not quoting the, a, a, a manuscript about her. I'm not, I don't need a pamphlet to lead me through what I know of her. I'm just talking about her. But why? Because I know her. So I want you to notice Paul knows God. He knows Jesus. He's gotten to know him through study and experience and prayer and and faith and all those things that develop a relationship with an invisible being that takes time and effort, but it's beautiful and awesome. And I guarantee you, when he shared, he shared in a way that no one else has shared about any of these other gods. Nobody's talking about Athena as personally and as, as, with such agility as Paul is talking about Jesus because he knows him. So he knows God. Do you? Are you there with God? In my experience, most Christians say, man, no, but they do. <laughs> they do. They're just so unpracticed at sharing about it that they think they don't know enough. Most of you in here know enough to change the world. You're just so unpracticed at talking about it and sharing about it that you think you don't. But, but if you don't, then that's your call. Paul was familiar enough with God, with the story of Scripture, that he could be agile and human when talking about him. And that is winsome in and of itself. So that's, that's the first thing he does in communicating in relevant. The second one, he, he knows, so he knows God, is he knows his audience. He knows his audience. I've already alluded to this, but because he has taken the time to get the spiritual landscape and the spiritual condition of the people, he doesn't share everything he knows about God in one sitting. Okay, he doesn't go, he didn't talk about Abraham at all. He didn't talk about the backstory. He didn't talk about Moses, King David. He didn't talk about eschatology. He didn't talk about, he didn't talk about everything he knows. He, he takes the part of the truth that is relevant to them. That, that's answering questions that they need answered. So follow this. Here's, here's kind of how he goes. This is that wonky part I said. So he starts by saying that this unknown God, he's already got him, this unknown God made everything. And he's Lord of everything. Heaven and earth. Already they're like, hmm, we have not heard of this God. Because all the gods we know, they're like Lord of, you know, finances. And that one's the Lord. Of, and you got to pray to all these different gods for different categories of life. He's already, he's presenting someone that's higher than all of that. And when he makes that claim, he then can make some other claims that are relevant to what he's observed here to contrast what they believe with what this unknown God believes. He says he doesn't live in temples served by human hands. Hmm. That, okay, that stands to reason because if he made everything, he's too big for these temples like our gods do. He's not served by human hands at all. Did you notice this? He's like, you're kind of doing this reasoning in here. How would you feel? I just could see him. How would you feel about a God that, that you could make? Right? I mean, the God I'm telling you about, the unknown one that you don't know about, he made you. He made the hands. So does it stand to reason that you could, with the hands that he made, make him? Okay, no. It, so he's not being condemning. But he's just revealing, letting them be able to measure what he's sharing with what they believe. 
And God gives, he then goes on and says, God, this God that does not reside in any temple, too big for that. He gives man life and breath and everything else. That's where I hear him saying, and his hands. Okay? So, so you can't believe that you can make him out of your hands. Listen, I know this might be a bit confronting to you. He didn't say this, but I'm imagining this is the spirit with these temples and these idols, but I'm just confirming something that you know, you and I know, one of your own poets noticed. Okay, and then he doesn't quote scripture. He quotes one of their poets. I did some poets. This is a guy from Sicily named Eratus who said, we are all God's offspring. This is so cool. He's like, this is truth they've discovered that they adhere to that rings true to them that's been proposed in their culture. Once again, he's seeing what they've gotten right and he's borrowing as he reveals the truth of God to them. He's borrowing on truth that they already have. Even some of your guys have concluded some things about this unknown God. And he quotes one of their poets and then he builds off of that. He says, so if we are, if your poet's right, we're his offspring. Does it stand to reason that we can't be offspring of gold and silver and stone? Doesn't that stand to reason? Okay, all right. He's not condemning. He's just processing. A lot of this they're doing in themselves. I'm just reading between the lines. So you see what he's doing here in Athens. He is confronting some of their false belief, but he's not insulting them. He's letting them measure their beliefs by truths already found. He's letting the truth itself stand up as a light. Pause. You're not responsible for getting them to agree. God is at work. Long before you got there, you don't have to say enough. You don't have to put all the puzzle pieces together. When they're ready, they're ready. And it has little to do with you. The Holy Spirit is at work. God wants those Athenians to know him more than Paul ever will. And he's already at work. And so did Paul do enough? No. There's lots of gaps. He did enough because he was willing and he just shared and he listened and he did his best at building this bridge. God moves in people. I'll give you that one for free. So you see what he's doing here. He knows his audience. He is confronting some of their false beliefs. But he's letting them measure those things. So, to communicate them in a relevant, winsome way, just put this together. He knows God. He knows his audience. So, he reveals the aspects of God that gives them hope for what they're already looking for. See, they're very religious. Did you ever pause? This is what we know about the Athenians from this text. They're very religious. Why? Paul was probably, these guys are very religious. Why? They collect and get to know all people, groups, gods. They're still doing that. They're still carrying that on. Why are they doing that? Why, when they hear of a new God, they collect those? And Why? We learn in this text that they make a point to talk about every new idea. Every new idea that comes up. Paul said something new and he gets in front of the Areopagus. Why? Why are they exploring all the new fangled ideas that come up? When they hear Paul talking about it, they want to hear more. Why? Paul discerns, I believe, that they're looking for something. They are looking to find God. And so Paul reveals 
this God to them, and then he says something that would have thrilled their heart. If he's right, if he's nailed this, and they're looking for God, they're trying to find God, and all of this is evidence they're trying to find God, he's got some really great news for them. He says that God, the unknown one, he's trying to find you. I guarantee you this stood in stark contrast to every other God they had there. This was what was unique. This was unbelievable. All of their gods are aloof. They don't really care about humanity that much. They got to cut themselves and scream out, please, God of agriculture, give us our food. And they got to try to get his attention, but he probably won't give them other attention. But that's what they're after. And he's suggesting this God is going to satisfy the very thing all of this is longing for. He's after you. In fact, he created you to be born at the specific time you were born. Live in the specific place you live just to put you uniquely in the best possible environment to reach out and perhaps seek him and you will find him. In fact, and he quotes another one of their philosophers, he says, in him you live and breathe and have your being. He does all this without scripture Again, this is a poet or a philosopher from Crete named Epimenides. It's not even mentioned as a quote in the text. You got to look, but it's in quotation marks. For in him we live and move and have our being. He's just merging. He's answering their question. He's sharing it in a winsome way. Do you see what Paul's doing? Paul's gotten to know Jesus. He's willing to get to know his audience. And therefore he can share Jesus in a relevant, winsome way. Now pause. This is a lot easier than it sounds when you're studying a 2,000-year-old episode, okay? You don't need to know poetry from Crete in order to connect, in order to share Jesus in your culture. Paul was, just like Paul was in his, you are already in your culture. You already know this culture. If I'm having a spiritual conversation with someone at Blue Sky and I mention a quote from Seinfeld, I've done that, if Paul was sitting there, he might be intimidated too. What's a Seinfeld? Dude, do I need to know Seinfeld? He finds out it's this TV series. Do I need to watch all of those to be effective at reaching out and sharing Jesus in this culture? That would be overwhelming to him too. Don't get overwhelmed by the first century part of this. If I said, hey, we're here to make Jesus great again, you would instantly relate that to something. I'm not suggesting you do that. I'm just saying... I'm just saying you would know because you're in this culture what that is alluding to. That's because you're in this culture so you can do this. So it's easier than it sounds, but while it's easier than it sounds, it does take effort and it takes intention. You have to care enough to go all the way to people. You have to be skilled enough with the backing of the Holy Spirit, so do not fret. Skilled enough to build a bridge from who you're getting to know to who you know. And then trust the Spirit to put the puzzle pieces together with those who are ready. If you're going to build bridges for people, you're going to commit the time to get to know people, to care enough to assess the spiritual situation they're living in, to assess their spiritual situation where they're at, to affirm what they already have that is right, and good to notice where God's already been at work and taking ground to start with their questions not the ones you wish they were asking because you got a great Bible verse for it 
but the ones they're actually asking, trusting that wherever those are, no matter how off the wall they are, at their core underneath it, there's a search for something that they need an answer to, and that Jesus, who is in our faith, the way, the truth, and the life, will eventually satisfy and answer that, but there's got to be a bridge to that. That's where we get to play. That's where we get to get on the field. And we do all of that when you do all that, you might be surprised how easily it becomes for the Holy Spirit to then give you the words to share Jesus in a way that is relevant and winsome. That's what we're after. I want to ask our elders and our ministers, go ahead and move around the room here as we finish up. And uh, our praise team, if you'll come on up here and prepare to close us down with some praise of this God. I want to just tell you one little part of this experience I had in Mexico where Callie is. It's such good timing. I thought I was going because she's going to be back. It's a six-month posting, and she's going to be back before, probably before I can travel again after my surgery. So I went now since my surgery's next week, so I can see it. I think the reason I was there is because we're right in the middle of this series. And I got to see this incredible environment that has created a space that's that speaks marketplace and Christian and that with ease sets it up to where you could go there and get in a spiritual conversation. It's a place where rock climbers come from all over the world. I met people from all these different nations. What they have in common is rock climbing. This is what, and coffee. (laughs) And so this coffee shop is the only game in town for these rock climbers to go. And they taught rock climbers out there. They know, hey, yeah, go to El Bujo. They'll help you with, I mean, with routes, at this place where they can climb in this incredible landscape. They, they, speak, they speak rock climber. They speak rock climber. I didn't know what they were talking about, but they speak rock climber. But they come in, and so people come in. It was cold while I was there, so they wanted coffee. So there were extra people there. And I, I met all these people. Two of them were Jordan and Grace. And they're just sitting in there, and I asked Callie, after she served them there, what they had ordered. I said, have, have they been in here? She goes, no. And so anyway, eventually I got in a conversation with them. It's just so easy in this space. It was, it's created for this. Bridges being built. We're getting a conversation. Grace is from the Philippines. So all of a sudden my daughter and I went to the Philippines. We went to, where'd you go? Leyte. Oh, I'm from Cebu. Cebu, we have a, a, a campus of this Christian college there, a church. And all of a sudden we're talking about Jesus. Has a campus in Cebu. And so we're, I mean, I, I, could, I had a dozen of those happen. I was in a hot spot. I want us to be a hot spot for that here in our mission field. I want us to learn how to do that, to find that. Some of you are already there. It just needs to be made into that. And maybe you can invite some of us into it. I want to share Jesus with people who don't know him yet, who don't believe in him yet. Not because so we can fill this, this room with more people in the pews but because everyone needs Jesus, because everyone needs life. Everyone needs forgiveness. Everyone needs hope. Everyone needs purpose. Everyone needs what we have found in Jesus. Let's stand and let's sing to God. Pray for these people, our Dionysius and Damaris's, that hopefully will come to us this year. Let's sing.